Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House. Welcome. There are many ways to support Basic Folk. If you have not had the opportunity, you can make a contribution at basicfolk.com slash donate. You can sign up for our newsletter also at basicfolk.com. Or you could follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pod. You can tell your friends about us, or you can just chill out and listen to this episode, which I am glad that you're here to do. MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger, and it is hard to put into words why I love this guy so much, but I know when it started. His band, Durham's His Golden Messenger, stopped by to play live at WYEP in January of 2017. They were the first band I interviewed after Trump was inaugurated. Like a lot of people, and like the white liberal woman that I am, the state of things had shocked me awake. I wanted to use my platform differently, and this was the first interview where I attempted to get a musician to talk about tough issues. Mike picked up what I was laying down. He talked candidly about the president. He declared his band was against Trump and stood with marginalized people, but still invited anyone who voted for him to the show that night. It honestly was like a 10-second comment, but after that interview, I felt some pressure and anxiety inside of me release. It was something that I had wanted to do for a while, ask hard questions. Not necessarily about politics, and actually, Mike didn't make it that political. I never forgot his grace and bravery in answering that question. This guy is so full of wisdom, and we get to experience that through his music and through his person. I'm so thrilled to talk to him about his music and latest album, Quietly Blowing It, although he's just released a His Golden Messenger holiday album called O Come All Ye Faithful, and a companion holiday release from his new project, Revelators, which he refers to as spiritual jazz and dub-influenced. The guy is prolific. Mike was always playing music thanks to his music-loving parents. His dad played guitar outside of his school teaching career and would play occasional gigs around their home in Orange County, California. Mike spent some time in San Francisco in a hardcore punk and an alt-country band. He became burnt out on playing music and headed east to the University of North Carolina to study folklore. He decided to start writing and recording some music under the name His Golden Messenger, an homage to his complicated feelings about religion and love of the lo-fi. He's since released a dozen or so albums and EPs under that name with a rotating cast of players backing him up. In our conversation, we cover topics including uncertainty, boundaries, and the state of music journalism. He also told me what the C stands for in MC Taylor, and he said no one ever asks that, no one knows, so I'll just keep that one to myself. 
We'll take a listen to a song from his Golden Messenger's latest non-holiday album. Here's Sanctuary, and then we'll get to our conversation with MC Taylor on Basic Vogue. Feeling bad, feeling blue, can't get out of my own mind. I know how to sing about it. Ring a bomb, a little lonely, I better hit the road. I used to work at WIP in Pittsburgh. I remember, yeah. I don't know about you, but that was the first interview I ever did after Trump won. <laughs> uh. I was like pretty nervous and was so happy that it was you that I'd be talking to. I remember <laughs> um, I pulled you aside to like talk about some questions and. You know, I, I was like, well, I'm going to ask this one question. Is that OK? And you're like, well, I'm going to talk about Trump. And I was like, great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm glad that, that that worked out. I mean, that was a that was a tough time. It's It's been it's been a lot of that sort of feeling that I think we all collectively had um, has hasn't really gone away, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's like a new way of of being. Yeah, that time everybody was pretty shell shocked. Yeah, but it's like so important to like keep doing what you do and keep speaking out the way you speak out because I think it's it has a huge impact in it. I mean, it resonated for me for a long time, and I'll I'll never forget it that interview we did. So it's nice to have you on again. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah. Um, I just like started tearing up. I don't know why. Um, I'm just so happy to like talk to you. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so let's uh, let's start from the beginning. You're from California, and you have talked yeah. about how you do not feel spiritually connected to where you grew up. Like you had a wonderful childhood, um, and everything was fine, but you just don't relate to the place. When did you recognize that and how did growing up in a place you didn't connect with help you in terms of like wanting to be connected by your surroundings? Well, um, I was born in Bellflower, California, which is not Orange County, but I was I was I grew up in Orange County 
And I was talking about this with a friend of mine today who is from Dayton, um, Daytona, Daytona Beach, Florida. Mm -hmm. And we were comparing notes about our connections or lack thereof of the places that we grew up. And he actually said something really good about his own relationship to the place, which basically, in, in short was that, um, you know, part of the reason he didn't feel a, a connection to the place he grew up was probably a lack of imagination on his part. So, like, <laughs> when, I, when I say that I wasn't super connected to Irvine, California, or Orange County in general, even though I, 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 had, a, I had a wonderful childhood, um, you know, I think part of that is that I, I probably didn't, put in the work actually to make that connection happen. Um, it seemed to me that there were other places where that connection was, was very evident and easy to find. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, but anyway, I, I felt that way at the time. I still struggle to like sort of find a connection to, to Orange County, California when mm -hmm. I go back there. But there are also like layers of layers of personal stuff in between me and the place. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's really it's really on me. I think. Yeah. Um, like I I have a very deep, super deep and abiding connection to California as a place. Um, like I'm always. I don't think it's it will matter how long I live in the South. I'm always going to feel like a Californian, um, and every time I set foot in California, I feel like I've come home, mm. you know? Um, and like that also took a, a long time to come to grips with because when I left California, I think I was like, I, I think I'm done with this place. I'm going to go like start, start anew somewhere else. Um, but the fact is California raised me and, um, I, I love it there. I, I have a really deep connection to that place. So, yeah, it's complicated. There's so many emotions that come with, you know, this sense of place is really so loaded, so loaded. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. in, 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 a lot, in most of the ways are, are really beautiful. Yeah. So it sounds like music was kind of always around you growing up. Your dad was uh, playing a beautiful guitar. Um, yeah. Uh, what kind of guitar was it again? It was a 1964 Martin D28 that he bought. Um, he bought brand new. I guess he was maybe 18 or 19. He bought it at McCabe's, which is a famous guitar store in Los Angeles. And I, oh, I yeah. believe at that... I believe at that time they also had a store in Long Beach, California, and I know that I'm I'm fairly certain that that's where he got his at the um, LBC. In the LBC, yeah, exactly yeah. right. My parents lived in the LBC uh, when they were very when they were young, like right after they'd gotten married and had both begun teaching. Um, mm. They lived in in Long Beach for for several years, hmm. and I know that you are a huge music fan, music listener. Um, you love sharing music as well. How did your experience as a young music listener and discoverer impact who you are today in terms of like as a music consumer 
and I was trying to find like a better word than like sharer of music, like music connector. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't know where that came from. My parents certainly liked music, but they weren't fanatical about it. They had a small collection of records. And the older I get and the bigger my record collection get, I the bigger my record collection gets. <laughs> the the more I realize that like they were really like they liked music. My dad, you know, is a great guitarist and singer, but like their their um musical interest didn't really run that deep, which is fine. Totally, totally fine, but um, you know, there was there was enough in there in that collection to spark to spark an interest and like why or where this sort of like voracious appetite for music and collecting music comes from. I'm not really sure. I've always been like a pretty a pretty solitary person. I think that it was something it was it was a universe that I could I could explore that felt completely boundless that I could, I could sort of explore by myself. And when I found something that I felt like would interest someone that I knew, then, then we could, we could share. Music is a really beautiful place for community in so many different ways. Um, and, and, uh, you know, but a lot of, a lot of the early music, that I was into, like I was the only person that I knew that, that was into that stuff. And I was mm-hmm. just spending all my allowance on, on tapes. And, um, I, I don't know. I don't really know. Like, I'm not sure what it is, but I just, I'm still like so obsessive about music. I still, am, I still buy, buy records like all the time. There's so many politics about being a record collector and um, or or really like anybody that has a lot of knowledge about something. And it's it's easy for the world of record collectors or knowledge collectors to become like real kind of there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens with it and kind of like rules um, that part I'm not really interested in. Um, and, and, um, you're not interested in rules. What a shocker. Well, <laughs> I just, um, like music is really joyful to me. And if I can turn someone on to something new that, that brings them joy as well, then, um, then that's like a really great feeling. But, it's not the type of knowledge that I want to like lord over people or make people feel bad because mm. they don't know about something. That's like that. I don't I don't like that. Oh, my gosh. More on that later. Um, OK, so the story goes that you joined a hardcore band um, as an 18 year old with Scott Hirsch, who you would then go on to um, be in a band with uh, in San Francisco. Um, you quickly burnt out and then moved to North Carolina to study folklore at UNC and Chapel Hill. And I imagine you had some like complex feelings about music at that moment. I did. I mean, I had been, um, I like that quick summation of those like <laughs> 15 years. That's really good. We or only more. have an hour. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. That's wonderful. Uh, I moved to North Carolina in 2007. And at that moment in time, I didn't know what my my future was going to be as a as a musician or a songwriter. I didn't actually think there was going to be one. The band that I had been playing in with Scott, we sort of like wrapped it up. We'd made several records and done a bunch of touring, but it hadn't really resulted in anything. Um, mm. I just needed a change. It just kind of sounded like it resulted in you being like, meh, about music, you know? Well, I mean, my my love of music was still totally there, but my understanding of like how I could even make 20 bucks playing music, you know, let alone enough to pay any kind of bill. I mean, I never, I never made any money playing music until recently. I mean, (laughs) shocking, shockingly recently. I'm not, I won't even reveal when it was in case there are any young musicians out there hoping to, to uh, do it for a living. But I just like kind of, I just came here and kind of floated, you know, like I, Mm. I was writing songs, I was still devouring music. I was trying to like reconnect with the, the personal parts of music that felt like they had somehow gotten lost or I had somehow lost sight of um, in the, with my previous band. I think like that was really the inflection point. Um, I had already started working under the name Hiskold Messenger in San Francisco, like right before I moved to North Carolina. And I had decided that I was going to, um, whatever music I I made in the future, it wasn't going to be a band. It was just going to be my thing. I'd make all the decisions. I'd pay all the, pay for everything somehow. I don't know how, but... I just, you know, I didn't want to like, I didn't want to negotiate, uh, not in like a bad way, but just, I just found that when I negotiated, things never turned out the way that I had envisioned them yeah. originally. Uh, I think like collaboration is, is really like the most magical part of music. But at that moment in time, I just like, I kept seeing, feeling like the things I was trying to do were not turning out right because there were too many opinions. Right. Well, it's interesting. You were talking earlier about being kind of a solitary person. It sounds like you were kind of recognizing the benefits of like leaning into your lone ranger. Yeah. Style personality. Yeah. Maybe so. I mean, I was certainly spending a lot of time alone or with my wife um, or shortly thereafter, like our first, our first kid, Mm. um, Elijah. Elijah was born in 2009. So, um, and, and uh, it was around that time that I wrote Bad Dead. It's no surprise that that particular record is so, is such a loner record. It's just like Mm. me and acoustic guitar into a little cassette player. And that was kind of like this this whirlwind of like all of a sudden I understood I understood like how I wanted to write songs, how I wanted to sing. There's a lot of stuff came together right at that moment. I think it was because I was spending um, a lot of time by myself, like actually 
really being forced to, forcing myself to, or being forced to confront, to reckon with what was it that I could do with music? You know mm. what I mean? I think a lot, a lot of that too was having a, having a child. <laughs> yeah. And really like my time, I didn't have, I didn't have like free time. So I had to just, I had to concentrate. It was a time of concentration. So, okay, in 2010, you mentioned Bad Debt. You released uh, this album, S. His Golden Messenger, and those are songs that you wrote in your own voice and ones that felt truly authentic to you. And, like, listening to you talk about that time and trying to figure out what you want to do with music, and I could be wrong, but I, I really feel like your boundaries were kind of, like, developing when it came to music like and that could be like totally a wrong observation but it's I still want to know more about your boundaries like you seem like a person who's like not going to do something if it doesn't serve you and I don't mean that in like a selfish way but in a way where like you have healthy boundaries and you know what's going to work for you or not going to work for you and I see you as like a really good example of someone with very good boundaries so how do you relate to your boundaries and what was your path in creating them? And like, what happens if you don't keep them, Mike? <laughs> this is like, uh, this, this, this feels like I'm at therapy right now. <laughs> um, in a great way. This is how I, this is how I do my therapy meetings as well. I mean, uh, I am up for anything. Um, but I think that it's really important for the music to feel to feel genuine. I want people to be able to believe to believe it when they hear a His Gold Messenger record and it's really it's very it's such a subjective thing. It's hard to it's hard to like explain what I mean when I say like it needs to feel genuine but I think like we all kind of know what it what it means when or or what you know when we hear something that we believe and we're like that sounds real that sounds like that person is in it like that's what I that's what I want so so like maybe maybe the the like realness of the music is is what defines the boundaries um if I can if I can incorporate something into my music in a way that feels genuine, then, then I, then I'm, I'm up for it. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it just, it, it, it really depends. I've, I've, I, sometimes I think about this stuff. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> um, I'm certainly never thinking about it when I'm like making writing or writing songs or making a record. But I made this other record that's coming out in the spring um, under a completely different name called Revelators. And it's, there's no singing. It's like, it's basically like a sort of free jazz or spiritual jazz mixed with like super textural ambient stuff. And, but it's also very rhythmic. It shares a certain DNA with his golden messenger, but then it also doesn't. It's kind of like this place that I 
put all this stuff that I haven't found a way to incorporate in a His Gold Messenger record yet, if that makes mm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like, it's pretty, it's pretty out, but it feels, it feels very real um, in, a, in a totally different way. That's cool. I read about the Revelators, and I actually like couldn't think of a question to ask about them, so I'm glad you brought them up. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Around the time that you put out Bad Debt, you said life was pretty good. You were a new dad. You were experiencing some new things. But we talked about kind of like the severe lack in your artistic life. And I found this quote from you that said, I'm to the point where I don't have any money anymore. I don't have a way to get together with the folks I normally play with. I was sort of at loose ends and it was sort of bleak. I wasn't sure how I was going to engage this part of my life that's so important to me, a.k.a. music. So recently on Basic Folk, I've been exploring with guests like making music for music's sake um, Mm -hmm. and... The gift of bankruptcy, uh, financial or otherwise, came up when I was reading about Amy Helm and talking to Amy Helm about Levon's experience of like bankruptcy, cancer, addiction recovery. And then like out of that, the Midnight Rambles formed and his amazing third act came out of that. Um, What can you say about how you operate when you're experiencing a deficit in your life? Um, it's hard to know. There have been a few, there are a few different kinds of deficits, maybe. Like, the the era that Bad Debt was written during, it felt like I had kind of burned everything to the ground, not in a bad way, um, but it's just like, I was, I was just a stranger, I was a stranger in a new place, and but I was also full of inspiration, you know, I had, I had like, we had our first kid, which is just life changing and continues to be. And, um, I just, I was excited. I didn't know what was coming, but I was excited. Um, I think generally speaking, like being creative is always, always like a rejuvenating and hopeful, um, hopeful place to be like whenever I'm feeling low if I can actually work up the you know the inspiration to just come into this room that I'm in right now and pick up a guitar I always feel better you know what I mean I can come up with a million different reasons why I don't I don't want to do that but I, I do know from experience that being creative is always healing for me Mm -hmm. um that's a big that's a big one i mean are you asking like what what happens when you're when you're out of ideas (laughs) no no not when you're out of ideas i'm i mean in terms of like you know it had never occurred to me like to hear amy talk about you know if you all of a sudden woke up tomorrow and you didn't have any money like yeah. my first initial thought would be like this is an emergency you know but right. like from that the way that you react to the crisis sure uh can be inspiring 
And it can be exciting to kind of like discover something about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I, I think in situations like that, like I have to think that, uh, well, I don't know. I can't speak for Levon or Amy. It, it, that seems like when she's described that time to me, it seems like a pretty stressful time. <laughs> um, yeah. It, like the, the, I, it, I, it makes me wonder like whether the beauty of reinvention was evident in the moment. It certainly is now, like when we look back and there's this kind of like grassroots lifting up of, of this, this, this person and, and his community and, and like this celebration of his musicality. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's a guy that it feels like everybody wanted to, to root for like mm. such a beautiful soul. His golden messenger has like reached this point of recognition. Even if you just learned how to make money, um, your band, it seems like has reached a recognition. Like you receive coverage and accolades and seem to go on some nice tours. And I was reading something from you that made it seem like you don't enjoy what you call the weird public recognition thing. Like, You'd rather play with your friends for no money to an empty room than a huge gig sponsored by some like terrible brand that pays a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like me being like pretty, pretty uh, holier than thou. I'll, I'll definitely take a brand's money if they're offering it. But all right, but there is like no, a balance I mean, to that, right? No, no, there's there's a, there's a there's a balance, you know, like. Um, I'm a really big Grateful Dead fan, and I, I am a big fan of this this podcast that has been running the past couple of years. And just today I was listening to an episode, and it talks about how that band really lamented when they could no longer play these small, beautiful theaters that they love to play at. They, they, they had to play stadiums just because the business demanded it. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm even remotely, remotely in that, in that place, but like it felt when I heard them talking about that, I was like, yeah, I can see how that would be like something it would feel. I don't know. There's just this like dropping away, this like dropping away of innocence. Like that is such a beautiful part of making music. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the, the like, um, anyone that I know that is, is quote-unquote famous seems like that's something that they have to deal with. It's not something that they enjoy, and it certainly mm -hmm. doesn't feel like something that would be fun in any way, you know what I mean? Um, when people see me out and about and they they someone comes up and says hey i love your music um that's totally cool i i it's like it's it's an honor you know what i mean like what an honor to have to have some stranger come say that to me not part of the um, weird public attention it's just like this the sort of like mill of the mill of publicity sometimes is kind of like i don't know there's always a moment in a like in a like publicity cycle this is not part of it by the way we're like past it and like for this holiday record we're putting out I, I said like no 
no, let's not do any interviews or anything. Um, there's always a moment though, and like any record cycle, publicity cycle, where I'm just like, why are we? What is this? Why do Why do we have to do this? Nobody mm. needs this. Nobody cares about about this. Like, I can't. I can't. I can't describe the songs. Any like you're gonna yeah. hear every. You know, it's so it's cliche to say it, but like the songs describe the songs so much better than I can in an interview. Yeah. <laughs> it takes longer. That's the problem. It takes a lot. A little bit longer. So, um, I don't know. We're not in a. We're not at a in a collective time where people want to deal with things that take longer but hmm. your answer just exploded several questions um so you were <laughs> on a podcast called um the show on the road so he brought up this review uh someone gave you that was not a very good review do you remember this conversation uh, um not I almost really. I was I was driving on the highway listening to this and I almost crashed my car the <laughs> your answer was so good so this review kind of like missed the point of your music and and your answer to that was that you were talking about rethinking about how art works how artists evolve and that you have to be really sharp if you're going to be a critic to understand how an artist's work is unfolding and this made me think of like, it kind of like stems into what you were just talking about. I don't know if I want you to answer like your take on the state of music journalism, but it made me think of like the quality of journalism that has been happening recently, how, you know, based on many different things in our culture, the, my perspective is that the quality has gone down. Like you have people mm -hmm. who are like wonderful writers out there, but there's just not this like emphasis on getting great writers and journalists to cover music. It just seems like a lot of, um, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get a lot of hits, trying to get a lot of eyeballs on things and the quality suffers in return. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have lots of things to say about that. Whenever I get a bad review and I'm feeling like stung by it, I always think like, what is the point of this sort of like hot take music journalism? At this moment in time, when there is so much chaos and grief in our world, wouldn't it be better to write about something that you love instead of something that you hate or something that you're kind of like, eh, I'm not like a big fan of this. Wouldn't it be better to write about something that you love? Once the stung of sting of like having a <laughs> getting a bad review wears off a little bit, like I still kind of feel that way. Maybe my position softens a little bit after the sort of like anger fades. <laughs> um, I still do feel that the most joyful, innovative 
writing about art comes from a place of of enthusiasm, right? Like, um, I think that I think that music criticism is really valuable. Like, I I I love to read a great writer writing about great music. That to me is is like a a beautiful coalescing of of two things that I love great writing and great music um but the like culture of music or like sort of the culture of hot takes right to like sort of grab eyeballs maybe mm-hmm. is is kind of it feels like kind of worn out it feels kind of worn out to me a lot of writers a lot of music writers are not going to be music writers by the time I put my next record out. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's something both to be like to lament and also it's something to be like, yeah, see, you got to like you got to have some stick with it. You know what I mean? You got to do it for no no money. You know, that's how you, that's how you like sort of sharpen your craft. It's kind of like I have both those feelings about it. Um, But then at the same time, like when I read a music writer that really is like really on the ball, Amanda Petrosich is one or Jessica Hopper, like it's really, it it can elevate. It can feel like it's elevating the music in, in some way. Okay, let's talk about different sides of your personality. Um, (laughs) I don't know how to start this question other than I found this quote where you were talking about, I'm lucky enough to have a language that I can use to articulate my emotions, and that's something not, not a lot of other people have. I feel like that's my daily mantra. I'm doing this because it's beautiful for me to do it, not because I'm trying to make a lot of money, and that's something people can feel. I feel like I've, like always known this version of you like I don't know pre you know his golden messenger Mike um and I'm just getting to know like this version of myself that like you know wants to lean in and show people this like vulnerable inside you know inside world and I don't know if this resonates with you but I also kind of fear for the side of me that's like the guardian of the inside, you know, and for me, that person is like funny and sarcastic, kind of like the entertainer. Um, And I don't want that to like go away or for people to like forget about that. I don't know if that's something that you relate to, like being protective of your shell and like, how do we keep them both? Is this a weird question? Do you want to skip this? No, (laughs) no, no. I like it. I like it. I mean, I'm not sure. I think you just do both. And you just hope that, you know, hope and assume that the people that you're closest to or that you want to be close to or that you admire and would like to have a relationship with, you just hope and assume that they are going to get that you're a multifaceted person that it has the like has the sweet and the sour, too. You know what I mean? Like everybody's like that. 
art that I love is always vulnerable. You know, there's always like a vulnerable part of, of art that I love. And I, and I felt like that was something that I could transmit in a way that felt real in my own, in my own, uh, work, you know? So, so sometimes like, I kind of think that like, (laughs) that's what a lot of people think that I am is just this (laughs) vulnerable (laughs) sort of, sort of wound, (laughs) sort of, I mean, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I have no control over that. And maybe I'll meet some of those people someday and they'll understand that I'm also like, just, I'm just like this, you know, just like a, a normal, not normal, but just, you know, I'm just a person that is like, some days I'm feeling low and wide open and some days I just like, you know, want to smoke some weed and just be silly. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, if if listeners are listening right now and you want like a really good example of something that Mike's done recently, the I think the... Um, the lyric video for Hardly Town is like a really good example mm. of showing your sides, both sides of yourself. Like, because I'm sitting there watching, watching it, and I'm watching you flip the cards down like Bob Dylan, and I'm like laughing my head off. Like you're hilarious in that video, and it's just like <laughs> so good. If anyone's looking for, we'll put it on the website. Yeah, you can check it out. Okay. Um, all right, quick question, and then we'll get to another question. This is a joke because it's not a quick question. How are you feeling about God these days? Um, I mean, fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, how are you feeling about God these days? Mm, fun. Throw it back at me. Um, fine as well. Uh you have this like view on God and religion you know I I wasn't sure if your view had changed where it sounds like you're very comfortable with like just being like fine and like not knowing Um, and it made me want to know about how you have approached uncertainty like when you first started writing these His Golden Messenger songs there's a lot of questions but not a lot of answers so how have you grown closer to being comfortable with uncertainty and how has your music helped you get there? I mean I I don't I don't like the the un, sort of living with uncertainty about being a higher I don't know not a higher power but god it's not something that I've ever struggled with any discomfort over, not even for a second. It's never even occurred to me. Like, it's just, I'm interested in this idea about there being a sort of architect of, of things, because I feel like there are moments in which I have felt like I was in the presence of what some people would call God. Those moments are are always either having to do with creation, with music, 
like just feeling so inspired and and elated in the moment that I feel um, sort of like transcendental mm-hmm. or um, moments like with my kids where the like the feeling of of and, and my family and my wife just like the feeling of love and connection is so powerful that I've thought to myself like this must be this must be what God feels like to to other people like just this overwhelming sense of like just gratitude and and joy um you know I think that that those universes which for me are all completely mixed together that's what I think um you know god is for me and i don't think that it's it's all that different from what they're talking about in church frankly mm. you know like i i feel like church is um church services are often trying to conjure a transcendental moment a sort of ecstatic moment that it, that that feels very similar to what i think i feel in in my moments um so like I do think that there's a god and I think that that's what it is for me. Do I believe in like a Christian sort of Christian theology? I, I mean I I certainly don't subscribe to the type of Christianity that people seem to talk about on the news when they're trying to make it harder for trans people to exist or for for some 18-year-old girl to get an abortion, you know. Mm-hmm. That to me is a complete perversion of what I understand the teachings of someone like Jesus Christ to be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the American style of Christianity that is wielded like a like a club by the American, the like GOP is, is like completely disgusting and shameful. Yeah. (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, and it's a tough one. And I think that, I think that people that are very connected to their faith that think progressively are in a really tight spot. You know what I mean? Like, and and so I, I've had to like really, I really want to be clear that I, I think that there are people, I think that there are Christian, American Christians that are amazing and super progressive and powerful community builders. I, like I, I went with a walk, on a walk with a friend of mine today that I often go walking with who is a pastor in, in, in Durham um, and I don't attend his church or any church, but like Is this your Daytona su- friend? Yeah. 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 He he's super right on. He's like right on the money with everything. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And um Yeah. He must be very frustrated to turn on the news and see a politician like sort of using this thing that he feels is is so affirming and beautiful using it to hurt people. 
let's talk about your latest non-holiday album. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> quietly blowing it. So at the end of 2019, back when we were all innocent and didn't know what was coming, um, you were feeling pretty burnt out from being on the road for like seven years straight. What was your state of mind at that point, and how did that burnout feel once like the pandemic started to settle in? When the pandemic first started, and I thought that we were all going to be just home for a month or two. <laughs> Remember when they were saying like three weeks, and then we'll be back to it. <laughs> yes. Um. You know, I was feeling pretty happy, to be honest. I was feeling pretty happy to be able to be home and not be traveling. I'm still pretty happy, actually. <laughs> I mean, I've gotten a little stir crazy, you know, like when you travel for a living for long enough, being stationary is feels strange. And actually, I love I love traveling and and I love being on tour. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, you know, at the time, I was kind of like, I mean, what's this going to go on for? Two, even if it went on for two months or three months, I mean, and there's no way that could happen. But even if it did, like, I'd be great. You know, here we are, like almost two years later. <laughs> mm. You know, I mean, it's tricky. Because, you know, at the same time that I was feeling like, oh, I can breathe, like I can just take a breath here. Like I also was fully cognizant of the fact that there was there was so much suffering and, and grief and devastation. Mm -hmm. So. So you've always had this like really great groove to your songs and this album quietly blowing it is no exception. Some may say it's your grooviest album, Mike. Really? Um, Cool. That's what I read on the internet. The oh. album. Yeah. What was your relationship to rhythm on the album in terms of like helping you communicate your songs? And was it any, did it feel any differently than other albums? I mean, I wanted to make a record that felt like super, like I wanted, I, I had the time to create what I thought was going to be like the purest <laughs> version of His Gold Messenger, meaning like I just wanted the record to feel good, to feel like swinging. Even the, the slow songs needed to feel like kind of swinging. And I spent a lot of time playing drums myself, actually, in this room, in this tiny little room. And so I'm a, I'm a terrible drummer, but I, I have like a, I have a decent feel, you know what I mean? So I could like play these grooves that like had the grooviness, but had like none of the chops. <laughs> <laughs> and then I could show, uh, then I could show, show my buddy, Matt McCon who played drums on, has play, he's played drums on many, many of my records, but I could show him and be like, okay, look at what I'm doing here. Now just play it like a real Play it like <laughs> someone that knows how to play. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, this totally makes sense. Was it scary to play it for your drummer? No, no, he's, no, no, because, no, because I, I was recording it. Like, there's a version of, there's a version of Quietly Blowing It that is me playing everything that I, maybe Release people Release the tapes. Will, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe someone will hear it someday. And so 
I mean, I spent a lot of time. I like really sweated <laughs> over this stuff that I was just going to use to show everybody. So like by the time I got it to Matt to listen to, to hear what I was wanting him to play, you know, it was like super rudimentary, but I had spent many, many hours trying to get it right. And um, so he was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> he didn't, un- he didn't understand how much sweat I had put into the, to the whole, the whole thing. You've spoken about the pandemic making you question certain things about what you have to do as a professional musician, like mainly leaving home and going on tours. Where are you with those kind of trade-offs and what changes will you make and what changes do you see your peers making? I think it's a little too soon to know, honestly. Um, I mean, shows are coming back, but... There's there's still a lot of second guessing. We're still seeing a lot of people cancel their tours. I don't know. I don't know. I, I hope that when we get back to a place that feels like the world that we knew, if, if we ever get back to that, I hope that we can sort of like take some of these feelings that we've all had. I'm certainly not alone in, in having them. I hope we can take some of them and, and actually make some changes. I mean, the thing is like, you know, it's really more like if I'm complaining about having to be on tour all the time, then people will say, well, then just don't, then don't. I mean, no one's forcing you to go on tour. Just Mm -hmm. do half the number of shows. And that means like, will I be content with half the amount of money? That's really what it is. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what it boils down to. Like, but, you know, but that's like an existential question that is a really great one to ask. Are you, would you be okay making less money if you mm-hmm. had more time at home? I mean, that's like a very legitimate question. And then it brings us back to the bankruptcy question. Right. And then right. we go bankrupt. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. Before you go, will you do the lightning round? Sure. Should we make it holiday themed? Sure. Okay. I don't know much about ho- I like holiday music. We'll do three holiday lightning round questions and then we'll do the other lightning round questions. You okay. will love it. Ready, here we go. Who is your favorite of Santa's reindeer? Oh, I mean Rudolph. The other, the other reindeer all seem so bitchy. What was your favorite Christmas ornament growing up? Oh, I think I I can remember my mom. My mom actually. Now that I think a little harder about it, my mom made a bunch of ornaments that still are in circulation that were like made of felt, and they were some looked like bells. The bells are the ones I can remember, and I, I like those actually. She made some of those and sent them to us, and we put them on our tree here as well. It's amazing the nostalgia. I feel when I when I see all of the ornaments as from, from when I was a kid. Yeah, I know. Very, very true. Yeah. Who's your favorite character on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? <laughs> um, I mean, Chevy Chase is what's his name? Clark. 
Clark, Clark. Grisby. Oh, wait a second. Beverly was is Beverly D'Angelo in that still? Mm-hmm. Beverly D'Angelo is great. So I'm kind of like confusing Christmas Vacation and European Vacation. Um, Mike, they're two completely different movies. I know. I know. They're totally different. Is Randy Quaid in the Christmas one? Getting. Yeah. Right. He's like the brother, maybe? He is married to Beverly D'Angelo's cousin. So they oh, call him wow. Cousin Eddie. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Randy Quaid has really gone off the deep end. But uh, he's a good one. All right. We'll do the other real lightning round questions. That was good. Um who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Uh, they've almost all been nice. <laughs> I don't think you get to have like a super long and successful career if uh, if you're if you're shitty. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I there's this myth that you have to be like cutthroat and stuff, but I totally think that that's that myth was written by someone that's no longer in the music business. Um. The nicest musician I've ever met. I mean, so many. Like, the first person that popped into my head is Ben Montench. Oh, I like that. I love him. I'm like, he's, I'm a big fan. But then I also thought about Buddy Miller, who's a guitar mm-hmm. player, and he's also like a super duper sweetheart. Two very generous people. Yeah. Okay, this is the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? A couple summers ago, before COVID, I went with my family. Um, I'm a, I'm married to a Mainer, so I spend my summers in Maine. And we went to Cadillac Mountain, which is a mountain in Maine. I don't do you know it? You must. You're from Massachusetts, so what part maybe. of I've never heard of it, but what part of it is it like Southern uh, Maine? Uh, no, well, I don't know. Maine is so huge, so I don't know if this was... To me, it's north, because it's a couple hours north of Portland. Um, but we went to Cadillac Mountain, and we went up on the mountain at sunset. There were, like, tons of other people there. It's like a thing. You go up to the top of the mountain for sunset. Oh, it's in um, Acadia. Yeah, it's in Acadia. And uh, it was absolutely stunning, like 360 degree views of just wow. like beauty. Um, I don't know if that's the most beautiful place, but like pretty, pretty dang beautiful. We'll accept that. Okay. As your answer. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me. I am a huge fan of you as a person and you uh, as a musician. So it really means a lot that you took the time. Thanks, Cindy. I appreciate it. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by Sarah Siplack. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes wherever you found this episode of Basic Folk and where you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.